Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Got the video stream going of the special Brantford City Hall City Council meeting where they're discussing whether to take the Hamilton Bulldogs to Brantford for at least the next three years. I'm guessing it's going to pass since at least one of the councillors is wearing a hockey sweater as he's talking. Might be a bit of a tip onto which way he's leaning on this one. But the question for us then becomes, okay, so we, we need to have our arena updated. It needs repairs. There's no question about that. It's 37 years old now, something like that, maybe older. And this needs to be done. But in the meantime, if there are no hockey games, no basketball games, because the Honey Badgers left, the Toronto Rock isn't going to be there, so no lacrosse, no conventions, no concerts. That's a lot of nights of activity in the downtown. What is the impact on our downtown. Ryan McHugh is the manager of tourism and events at the city of Hamilton. He joins us now. Ryan, thanks for doing this tonight. I appreciate it. Good evening, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's go to that first right off the bat. And I don't know if we know the figure or if there's a way to calculate the figure, but do we have any idea of what sort of economic impact a quiet arena downtown will have for two or even three years? So we do. In uh, 2019, if you recall, uh, Scott uh, Ernst & Young completed uh, an arena study on behalf of the city. And at that time, they uh, calculated the annual economic impact of that building uh, of upwards of uh, approximately 30,000, sorry, excuse me, 30 million per year. So ab- absolutely, that's a large hole. And recently, that arena has been on quite the run, uh, in addition to shows like Michael Buble, uh, Blackpink, the Korean uh, K-pop band, yep, yep. which had people come in from all over the world. Uh, this year we have the Canadian Country Music Awards, uh, as well as uh, Shania Twain coming as well. So definitely been on a run. And uh, you know, you're absolutely right. That is uh, a hole that would need to be filled. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, as the city and uh, whether it be BIAs and Chamber of Commerce, Commerce uh, there's not one way to do that. But I'd love to talk about some of the uh, things that as the city and tourism, Hamilton and economic development, uh, we are be do- will be doing to help fill that gap and should really move the needle. All right. And let's do that because I would assume, and, and you can, you can talk about my assumption first and then jump in. I assume sure. the city does not have in its budget $30 million to just simply to pay out to the businesses that are going to be missing that over the next year, 90 million, perhaps if it's three years. So something else has to fill that void, I'm assuming. So what could that yeah, be? That's correct. And um, so you know, looking at uh, other opportunities to fill that void and uh, you know, as you're well aware, I'm sure, Scott, uh, Tim Hortons Field had a, a record year in 2022. So in November, we'll be hosting our second Grey Cup in three years. Also have the NHL Heritage Classic, where the Leafs played the Sabres. Uh, the Ticats, hopefully they're making deep playoff runs, as well as the Forge and the uh, Canadian Premier League, uh, even the concert the Arkells had. So uh, you know, leaning on Tim Hortons Field uh, as a source of activation, and economic impact will be important, uh, as well the the convention center. Uh, meetings and conventions are starting to come back uh, in a big way, uh, as well just looking at some of the creative uses last year. We had the Van Gogh immersive experience at the convention center, and over uh, three to four months that that exhibit was in place, there was over 60,000 people that went through that building. So that's not quite a full bulldog season, but I'd say a healthy chunk. Um, in addition to uh, so 2023 opportunities um, in 2024, we have the RBC Canadian Open. I know last time, Scott, we hosted that in 
2019, you wrote a nice column about the uh, considerable economic impact yep. that yep. took place. So uh, we hope to not only match that, but exceed that. And we're leaning on, you know, sport tourism, uh, whether it be amateur sports, tournaments. Um, just uh, this March, we have a bit of our own March Madness here in Hamilton. We have the CCAA Women's National Basketball Championships at Mohawk and then the U Sports Men's National Volleyball Championships at McMaster. So from a tourism perspective, so there are things, uh, for sure. a lot of irons in the fire. But another one which is, uh, creates great uplift, and we had a record year. Uh, I'd love to talk a little bit about film, if I may. Well, just, just before that, because you mentioned the Tim Hortons field, and maybe we could use that more. Can that be used more? And the reason I ask is because it, it you, the Ticats have to be able to practice and play. So setting up concerts or whatever else takes time, that takes away from their use of it. The Forge is there, and I know that... Last year, the city made a vow that they were going to try and allow more use of Tim Hortons Field for community use, as was initially promised. So how do you fit more events into there? Yeah, and that was a packed year. And, uh, you know, to build and uh, to build that and elevate that would certainly be a challenge. But I know the, the Tiger Cats and the city will do everything in our power to try. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned, there's not one thing we can do to fill that void, but uh, a number of things. And... Uh, you know, as I as I mentioned, Scott, uh, film is another avenue to create um, economic impact in the city. And last year, we had a record number of productions, uh, so over 170 uh, filmings in Hamilton. So whether that be movies or TV shows, and just last year, that created you know 72 million in economic impact. So you know, just for scale, uh, I spoke about a full year's worth of arena activity at approximately 30 million dollars. Uh, Film, you know, is growing and growing quick, and that fills up hotel rooms, restaurants, employs a ton of people, and you know anything that gets Arnold Schwarzenegger to mm. town. But, but, cool well. but Ryan, that thirty million, and that's great. I mean, look, we love having the filming industry here, but that thirty million for the businesses downtown is still gone. Is that in any way recapturable, or are they just going to have to deal with big loss? Not big loss, but deal with the loss of that for the next couple of years. Yeah, so in the, uh, the recently approved, would have been last year, the Economic Development uh, Action Plan. Uh, so these types of transformational projects, um, such as um, the uh, arena renovations and LRT, you know, there is a realization that these are disruptive, uh, clearly. But in addition to having the arena offline, you know, the $100 million, which will be invested in that facility, will also create a great deal of economic uplift. That's significant construction jobs, um, even just anecdotally looking at all the cranes in the air in Hamilton from all the, um, the towers that are going up. Uh, if you walk around in the morning, you see construction workers going to get their coffee. You see them out uh, getting lunch. And afterwards, when I walk, uh, walk by King Williams uh, after my, uh, I call it a day here at Lister Block, definitely see that pack. So the impact of $100 million making its way into that building, um, you know, that's $100 million that wouldn't have been spent otherwise. And just as a comparator, uh, Baltimore, uh, so the same uh, partner, uh, Oakview Group, so that was founded by uh, Timothy Lewicki, yep. formerly of uh, President uh, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. So in addition to uh, $700 million investments in Climate Pledge Arena, a billion-dollar investment in the complex where the um, New York Islanders play, uh, the UBS Center. Uh, they're just finishing up a $200 million investment uh, in Baltimore. 
um, at what will be called CFG Bank Arena. And uh, based on local media reports there, that construction alone has created over uh, 500 construction jobs. So, um, you know, that in itself creates uplift and uh, building these arenas and these uh, skyscrapers, which are going up at a quick rate, um, not only does it redefine the Hamilton skyline, but it also creates a ton of economic impact. It's uh, it's going to be something that is uh, that is certainly to keep an eye on. Um, and if you're a downtown business person, I guess to keep your fingers crossed that this uh, the, that that investment pays off and that you can get to that investment. Uh, Ryan McHugh, really appreciate you taking time. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you very much, Scott. Have a great night. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a study that came out. Uh, it was released today. Today, yeah, today's the seventh. Uh, there you go. Uh, it was released today. It was by the uh, Bank of Montreal uh, Finan- BMO Financial Group. And it asked people what they thought, what amount of money they thought they were going to need to gather together to hole up in their little mattress or RRSP or wherever they keep their money. How much money were they going to need to put away in order to retire? And let me just say that uh, people I think are either optimistic or pessimistic. I mean, optimistic on the hand that they could get this much money tucked away. Pessimistic that, boy, it seems like for most people, this means retirement is out of reach. Because the the Canadians said the amount of money they are going to need to retire is $1.7 million. Even Dr. Evil didn't go that high. He was only a million dollars. If you remake Austin Powers now, it's $1.7 million. It's, it just doesn't even work. That's a lot of money for most people to stash away. Especially, especially when you consider that according to the same poll, the national average amount that people have in their RRSP, and this is the average, so some have more, some have a lot less, is $144,000. That's a long way from 1.7 million. I want to bring in Thee Convery. Uh, she is a financial planner. She uh, is a wealth advisor uh, out of Dundas. I love having her on here. Thee, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. If I am someone who has, even if I'm an average Canadian, if I have $144,000 stashed away in my RRSP, but I believe I need $1.7 million to retire, I'm screwed. Well, not if you're 19. <laughs> Okay. How many 19-year-olds have 144000 in their RSP, though? Probably not a heck of a lot. Yeah. But uh, I, I suspect the time frame uh, in which you have to continue to save and for your 144000 to continue to grow certainly ought to be a factor as well. When I heard this number, Thea, I actually read this twice because my first thought was this is what Bank of Montreal was saying you had to have stashed away. This is what Canadians believe they have to have stashed away. Mm. Where do you think that comes from? Because I've always heard that you need a million. And I know in- inflation and everything else, and I don't even know if the million is a reasonable number. But where do you think 1.7 million, because it's a weird number to just magically appear out of the ether. Well, if I just propose, uh, they didn't do this in the article, but if I just propose a 5% rate of return on $1.7 million, that will create $85,000 a year of income. 
okay, consistent income uh, on the 1.7 million. But of course, Canadians, most Canadians, would have CPP contributions on top of that. If you're over age 65, you'd likely have old age security as well. So I, I think that's where the number's coming from. What do you want to have to live on every uh, year or, or every month? As Canadians, we, we kind of budget on a monthly basis, and then they back that up. Oh, if, if that's what you want or need, uh, then here's the pot of cash you need in order to produce that, uh, that income. Does this suggest, Thee, that Canadians are overly cautious? Because as you say, if you're going to have CPP and old age security and maybe a pension, if you're someone who's had a job who's got that, adding $85,000 a year to that seems like, boy, you either lived a rather lavish lifestyle or you're planning to when you retire or you're really concerned about something. Well, if you are uh, currently earning uh, 150000 at your job, maybe you didn't start that in, young in your career, but you're later in your career, you now see retirement on the horizon and uh, uh, with your skills and talents. Late in your career, if you're earning 150, if it drops to that 85,000, boy, oh boy, that's nearly a 50% decrease in your standard of living. And I could only surmise any one of us, regardless as to what your income is, if it dropped in half at a time when, uh, if you're thinking of doing more traveling and experiencing other things that you couldn't do in your career, that's going to be a, a pretty hefty swing. When you talk to clients, how many of them, I, I was reading something just the other day about um, CPP and, mm. you know, is, is the government actually flush to be able to keep CPP going? I know our rates just went up at the start of this year. How many of your clients are concerned that maybe when it comes time to get that, that it may not be there exactly as it was promised? Well, uh, let's split our two government pensions that we have, the old age security, which is age and residency-based. You need, you need to be a certain age, and you need to have lived in Canada for a certain period of time. Now, that's funded from tax dollars. So as our governments, uh, uh, federal in this case, collects uh, income tax, then they turn around and dis- distribute that as part of the old age security. Um, whereas Canada pension is contributory. If you worked previously self-employed or as an employee, part of your earnings um, uh, would be contributed to the Canada pension plan. So if you were perhaps a homemaker and stayed home raising kids, um, or if you were a full-time employee for your career, then you likely had contributed to the Canada pension plan to the maximum. So everybody's CPP contributions could vary from the maximum to, um, to zero if you never, um, uh, never worked outside the home. Um, so those two pieces, OAS funded by tax dollars and Canada pension funded by contributions, they're both being stressed. Um, as you might suspect, our, our federal government is, um, has to watch their, their pocketbook. Uh, and so if you earn over a certain amount in this year, 2023, if you earn more than $87,000 and qualify for the OAS, you're going to have to give some of that back. So uh, is it not going to be there? Well, they're already sneaking away at it. Whereas Canada Pension, they haven't clawed that back. That's the term they use for these the OAS pension. Instead, what they're doing is they're requiring employees, uh, self-employed or, um, uh, or uh, 
and natural employees um, to contribute to that plan. And the percentage that you must contribute keeps sneaking up higher and higher. Mm-hmm. We don't really really see it. So they're, both of them are stressed, and the federal government should keep those two going. Uh, claws back on one, the OAS, and asks for a little bit more as a percentage for contributions. So could they call the, the CPP back? Sure. they, they got to get those dollars from somewhere. Let me go back to this $1.7 million because I have to think that not everyone is going to read the story or listen very carefully. They're going to hear $1.7 million to retire, um, mm. wh- whether they even pay attention at all or not because it seems so out of reach to so many people. Um, it, it does seem daunting. I mean, for anybody who's getting close to retirement age, there's always going to be a little bit of nerves, maybe a lot of nerves about what you've stashed away. But boy, that, that is a figure that I think for most Canadians to hear that, you're just saying, what am I even bothering with? I, I have no hope. Well, remember, the 1.7 was to create the income right. that an individual might want. And as you said, if they have a pension plan, which fewer and fewer people are, are having those these days, um, that will bridge some of that gap. So we don't think of a pension as a pot of money, but in fact it is, and each of the pensioners uh, get their share of the pot. So that will bridge some of the gap. Some of that 1.7 might be sitting in your, in your pension plan. Um, but as I said, fewer and fewer individuals now contribute to uh, a pension plan. It's just not available. If we think back to our, perhaps our parents and grandparents, um, boy, oh boy, just about everybody was in a, um, a pension. The reason for that is they wanted to um, lovingly force uh, employees to be setting aside funds for their future. The government actually thought that was a, uh, a smart move because then those folks will have uh, retirement funds. And some of us, unless we're um, uh, lovingly encouraged to set aside money, we won't do it otherwise. But now um, you'll see federal, provincial, even municipal employees will have those pensions, but fewer and fewer private employers are offering. They might have a group uh, retirement plan, uh, or they may even um, set aside a certain amount of funds every year for the employee to put into their own RRSP. But the liability now to fund the pension um, uh, is, is going to be switched from the employer to the employee, meaning you are now more responsible for funding that instead of uh, your previous employer. Yeah, and and I'll say this. I mean, you you at the very beginning, when we very first started, and we talked about the 144,000 the average Canadian has, and you sort of, I think, jokingly said, yes, but if you're 19, you've got Mm. lots of time. Okay, that's terrific. But let's say even if you're 30, now you don't, if you're 30, you may not have a pension. And if you want to buy a house, it's not the same as back when your grandparents were buying a house. All of your money is now going into paying the mortgage to the point where you probably don't have a ton of money to put into your RSP and you don't have that pension. It becomes a pretty scary thing that uh, I would think that for a lot of people, their home becomes their retirement plan. Well, um, that may be a poor strategy. So uh, you are, in fact, correct, though. The younger you are, the greater the odds that you do not have a pension. So you'll have to self-fund. I mean, you were doing that in a pension, but it was forced to happen, and your employer was contributing as well. So the younger you are, the less the odds are that you have a um, a non-government pension. 
um, and so you'll have to do it yourself. That's the first thing. But then the second thing is you are likely going to live longer, in uh-huh. which case I would encourage you to work longer. I think back to my grandfather worked to the day he died, or pardon me, um, worked to 65, and uh, back then the average life expectancy for a Canadian male, they didn't include gals in that calculation back then, but uh, generally ladies were homemakers, um, the average life expectancy for a Canadian male when he retired at 65, the average life expectancy was 64. Huh. So that government plan is going to sustain itself forever. That's right. It's, it's running negatives at that point. It's running negatives. Yeah, that's, that's going to work just fine and dandy. But the average life expectancy for a Canadian today, male, now is just shy of uh, 80, and um, ladies live, uh, tend to live a little bit longer. But by the time we all get there, those numbers will progressively get higher and higher. Right. So, so you live longer. Thinking, you don't have a correct. pension. And, and the cost to own a home or pay rent or something else is much, much higher and all your bills are higher. So less money to put into your own pension. It, it, like it's all working against you. Well, um, you could choose otherwise. So granted, uh, we've seen in this little uh, gold, golden horseshoe, we've seen housing costs that are increasing exponentially. But I, I encourage folks, uh, don't buy your forever home if you're in the, in the market to be a first-time home buyer. Do not be shopping for your forever home. Buy your first home. And that means it may not have the pool and the backyard and the uh, uh, four bedrooms uh, and, a, and a finished basement. Shop for your first home. Um, uh, it, it's not forever. Uh, and that will keep your costs down. And then you can aspire to, those, to um, a different form of housing down the road. But the lower you can keep your costs at the front end of your, of your career housing and food and uh, holidays and the like, the greater you can squirrel away at, in which case time will now be working on your side. First home, not forever home. Yeah, see, I laugh about that only because we got to run. I laugh about that only because uh, I, am a, um, I am a victim of the curse of watching Home and Garden or HGTV. And when you watch like Home Hunters or whatever and you see the 26-year-old people go, we need to have five bedrooms and 3,000 square feet and we need this. And, we, and I was like... Okay. Okay. Mm. Now, you know, slightly different place, perhaps, if you're buying in Alabama than if you're buying in, in the Golden Horseshoe. Uh, but nonetheless. Well, they will be compromising their financial futures if they are making those decisions. It is. Uh, it's an interesting one. The, uh, as I say, the, the piece today from, uh, from the Bank of Montreal, Canadians believe they need $1.7 million to retire, which is up 20% in just two years. Um, okay. Uh, Thea Convery, she is a wealth advisor from Dundas. You can find her online if you would like to look her up. Uh, Thea, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it, as always. The pleasure's mine. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.